0: Well, this week Turkey's been front and centre of the news for us and as I've seen it and thought about all of that, I was reminded of an event uh, that had touched me and it came to my mind. So I just looked it up and it was 1999 when it happened that Turkey was headlining our news again, but for a very different reason, so it's 20 years ago. And then in our living rooms, our living rooms were constantly invaded with pictures of the devastation of earthquakes that had happened in Turkey and in Greece also. Particularly with respect to the vision coming out of Turkey, it was impossible to take it in as you just saw village after village after village, a crumbled heap of rubble. The fallen, twisted wrecks of once free-standing buildings were almost unreal. Even more difficult to take in was the human toll we could see etched on the faces of those people. But the standout feature for me though was the mobilisation of families, of friends, of neighbourhoods and the international community to search for the living who were buried in that mess. Bare hands, shovels, sniffer dogs, tractors, cranes, heat-seeking equipment were used to reach those lost in the rubble of battered buildings. It was a rescue mission of huge proportions because people mattered and the exciting thing to see was the spontaneous joy on the faces of the rescuers to hear the applause as each precious life was lifted from deep within the ruins alive rescued saved were some of the words that were being spoken out and that's become a bit of a metaphor a parable uh, for me of those who are lost in the tangled mess and confusing jungle of our culture and our society and the question becomes where are those who will get out there and rescue them bill hybels in his book becoming a contagious christian and that's got to be 20 plus years old now said this in their heart of hearts i think true followers of christ long to become contagious christians Though unsure about how to do so or the risks involved, deep down they sense that there isn't anything as rewarding as opening a person up to God's love and God's truth. In other words, we actually want to get in the rubble of our decaying society and rescue people. But he goes on to say this, but though we might like the idea of having a spiritual impact on others, we won't take decisive action unless we first raise our motivation level. And one of the best ways to do that is to get God's perspective on the matter. I know it's good for me to be honest. I'm sure it is for us. And my guess is for most of us it's hard to keep our focus on Jesus our tendency is to or to keep our focus keep it on Jesus and keep it on those who are lost our tendency is to drift away from genuinely valuing the spiritually lost and confused we're quick to forget how much they matter to God that's those we work with that's those we play with that's those that are in our families we don't have to go anywhere to find them they're there From that reading we had, the party was going really well as Jesus feasted with Matthew the tax collector and some of his less than desirable mates. Matthew had found something and someone of great price when he encountered Jesus and he followed Jesus. He left his tax collecting and followed Jesus and he wanted to throw this huge party where he could invite all his mates and you know his less than savoury friends to and invite Jesus to the feast as well. And believe me, he would have been able to host an incredible feast. And Jesus accepted that invitation. And when he accepted that invitation to a meal where you sit and linger and socialize and have friendship, he was clearly stating that he fully accepted Matthew and his friends. He was indicating his friendship with those less than to some others. You see, the religious watchdogs were around in their holy huddle, the Pharisees and scribes and so on at the time. And they were lurking somewhere close enough to see what was going on. And they made a complaint to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus told us as it was to those religious guys, there's a healthy man, there's a sick man, and a doctor. Meaning, there's righteous people, sinful people, and of course me, says Jesus. I mix with these sinners, sick people, because they have a need, and I have a cure. They have a terminal disease, sin. Yeah, they could die with it. My message of salvation is the only cure. We read later on that Jesus encountered another tax collector up a tree, Zacchaeus. Another big party thrown, Jesus invited and he goes. And during that party, he says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Another occasion recorded for us in Luke chapter 15, Jesus found himself surrounded by a large crowd of irreligious people. Some of them were undesirable, some were just unconvinced, others were spiritually confused, there were morally bankrupt bankrupt people from the town there. People God couldn't possibly have any use for, so the religious leaders thought. Because off to the side was a holy huddle of religious leaders who were shaking their heads, muttering all the time. They were criticising Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, for hanging out with those kind of people. Jesus obviously knew what they were thinking, what they were mumbling about. So he told them a steady but forceful way, in a forceful way, the stories of the missing sheep, the missing coin and the missing sons. There were two missing sons, if you read that really careful. Jesus told these stories rapid fire to make sure everybody there understood that people mattered to God. If God cares about people so much that he sent Dr. Jesus on a rescue mission, then we too, the sent ones, as we've been talking about, salt, light and yeast, should have such care About people. The way Jesus lived his life and told stories like these tell us that we have never locked eyes with another human being who isn't valuable to God. If that's all you remember this morning, that's all you need to remember. We have never locked eyes with another human being who isn't valuable to God. And if we live in awe of the depth and breadth of God's love, we will treat people differently as if they matter to God. We are to be what I call conduits of God's love. In other words God's love flows in us this morning and we've we've taken it in and, and it's just been good to sit around the table quietly and take in God's love again the grace and forgiveness but as we go to where to be conduits of it not people who store it up like reservoirs we know what happens to water that gets stagnant and has nothing comes in gets on the nose doesn't it and we can become on the nose if we're not sharing out the love of God in Jesus Christ we are to help people get their celebration parties because that's what happened in all these stories celebrations went on heaven as people came to know Jesus that's joy does that not touch us a little bit that there's a great party goes on heaven when a new person comes in and knows Jesus we're called to help people get their celebration parties There is a great adventure in spreading the love, the truth and life of Jesus to people who matter deeply to God. There's a wonderful story told in 2 Kings 6 and 7 that I think is really helpful for us as we ponder this idea of ourselves being missionaries. We're not going overseas, we're just going back into our community out here. And uh, I'm just going to briefly tell that story. The scene is it's about 850 BC. So the nation of Israel has really just come down off its highest point. Around the year 1000 AD, uh, Saul, David, Solomon was the real high point for the kingdom. So it's come down a little bit. And king, the king of Aram has laid siege to Samaria. Now Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom was divided in two now, it was not one. And this is the northern part of the kingdom. There's a siege being if you know anything about sieges you don't want to know. There are horrible things in those days where people couldn't get in and out of the city, where food couldn't come in and out, nothing could happen, and that the enemy just sat out there and and watched a city shrivel. Can can you can you just so they're being laid siege to and it so happened that there was a great famine at the same time around the whole district. And as a result, the Isra- Israelites, you can read this in the story, the Israelites were eating animals that had been pronounced unclean. They also resorted to cannibalism. It was a desperate and seemingly hopeless situation as this siege was going on. There were four men with leprosy. Who were where? Just outside the city gates because they couldn't be inside because they are the untouchables. They would interfere religiously, ceremonially and make people unclean. And they could communicate the disease as they thought in those days. So they were outside the city gates. The untouchables according to Jewish law, outcasts. And they saw themselves as being in a seemingly impossible situation. And this is what they said to each other. Why stay here, outside the city gate, until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, which they couldn't anyway, the famine's there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans, the enemies, and we'll surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us then we die. It's kind of like, do you want to die slowly by the famine or go to the enemy and die quickly with a spear in you? That's how these lepers felt. This is what we read at dusk, The lepers got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. So they did what they said they were going to do. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man, woman or child was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So the Arameans got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Can you see the eyes of the four lepers as they reached the edge of that camp just popping out of their heads? They could not believe their eyes. There were no troops. The camp was deserted. All the tents and food were there. All there. anything they wanted was there for taking. Truth was stranger than fiction to these lepers. They didn't know the reason for the empty camp. We do because the writer told us. But they didn't know, they just arrived there. Can you picture what this meant for these outcasts of society whose life was miserable at its best margins? Perhaps you need to read the story slowly and ponder what that would be like. The four lepers were beside themselves with their undis- unbelievable discovery of good fortune. And this is what we read The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They stockpiled them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it, and hid them also, stockpiled them. They began to frantically hoard their good fortune, and why wouldn't you? I reckon I would have. Who could blame them? And they looked at their stockpile of goodies, and they looked at all the tents they hadn't been in yet. Saw what was left and said, this is way, way, way more than we need. And then they had a divine moment. This is what they said, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Let's go back to Samaria and tell them what we've found out there. Why did the lepers share the secret of the abandoned camp? Because they were overwhelmed by the unexpected good fortune. They were awed by the provision that had been divinely supplied for them. Somehow they knew it would be a crime for them to keep this incredible find to themselves, holding the blessing of God to themselves. The people in the besieged city mattered to God and so they went back with the good news just want to read you a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1 you'll hear me read these often verse 4 to 8 from the message how blessed is God and what a blessing he is He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Ponder that for the next three months. Long before he laid down earth's foundation, he had us in mind and settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of the lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Can we get a picture of what we have in our God in Jesus Christ? Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people. Free of penalties. Free of punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free. Abundantly free. Free. This is the good news of our belovedness that we have been given in superabundance by our Father through Jesus Christ. This overwhelming generosity of God to us is the motivator we need to share the good news with people who matter. People who matter to God. You cannot dig up the motivation from within yourself The motivation comes as you sit under the riches of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. I can't guilt you out there because it won't work. I can't guilt me out there. The only way that I can be the salt, light, and yeast and be the sent one, the missionary under the power of the Spirit of God, is as I suck in the riches. That God has for me in Jesus Christ and be that conduit that lets them go to those around me in the way I live and the way I speak. Are you a hoarder of the riches of Christ Jesus or are you a sharer of the riches of Christ Jesus? Someone once said, You keep what you give away. And I reckon that's true here. You keep what you give away. Because we're told we're being given this abundant freedom. It's lavished on us. Look at those words. It's great celebration stuff. It'll never run out. Let's give it away. Give it away. By the way we live and the words we speak. Let me change tack completely for a moment. There was a sociological study done in the USA about 25 years ago and it was asked of people aged 95 years and older and they were asked just one question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? This is the question they were asked. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? Blank page in front of them, no suggestions, nothing. What would you do? And there were three answers that emerged. So they're free to write what they want. I would reflect more. I would risk more, and I would do more things that outlive me. And I reckon these three really impact the way we think about mission. Sounds like wisdom from the age. I find this really challenging this morning, so <laughs> I'm speaking to myself here as much as anyone. These people said they would spend more time getting away from the treadmill existence of life and thoroughly examine the direction direction and meaning of their lives, they would reflect more. As a result of this reflection, they would then make certain the energy they were expending was going towards worthwhile causes. Socrates, Greek philosopher, 4th century AD, said this, an unexamined life is not worth living. As these elderly reflected, they recognised... This is what they said. They recognised that they failed to appreciate properly many of the blessings that had been theirs by the grace of God. Wacky-do. So they had failed to live with gratitude as they should have and with purpose. If we fail to reflect upon our great salvation, we will live without gratitude and without a heart for people, people who matter to God. They would reflect more. They would also risk more. Given another chance, this one really challenges me because I'm not a risk taker. Given another chance, these elderly people would have been more courageous about stepping out of their comfort zones. They would have taken risks in order to raise the bar on what they achieved and to make life more interesting. This life is the only one we have to live, they said. I'm sure most of us at some stage of our Christian walk have dreamed of leading people to Christ but we've suppressed that dream because we're afraid to take the risks involved. This diminishes our energies and renders us as lifeless as a bottle of Coke left for a day without the lid on. No fizz at all. William Carey, Baptist missionary, was known as the father of modern missions, 1761 to 1834, and he said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. What do you expect of God as you walk out that door this morning? (laughs) It's a hard question, isn't it? we expect that he'll just evaporate into thin air and we're left on our... No, we're the sent ones with the power of the Holy Spirit. Those great things are most likely not be that you're going to be the new Billy Graham. You may be. See, we often think of greatness in terms of somewhere way out there. But it'll be to be the people who simply risk building one relationship at a time with the lost. The people who matter to God. It's very simple. One relationship at a time. Let them see Jesus in us. Let them ask questions. Let us tell them about Jesus. They would reflect more. They would risk more. And thirdly, they would do more things that would outlive them. I believe there's a latent desire in each one of us to do something of worth that will have a lasting significance, something that will go on when we die. Why do so many people, men in particular, stop dead in their tracks around midlife? I want to suggest to you it's because they're asking, is what I've done and is what I'm doing significant? Have I contributed to life? Is this all there is? One of the things that keeps me motivated as a pastor, that keeps me motivated as a dad and a granddad, is that God uses little old me to help people journey towards Jesus and helps others to travel well with Jesus. It's incredibly humbling for me to know that God uses me to leave a legacy in other people's lives. It's a stunning thing. There is stuff going on around me because I've uh, uh, invested myself in people that is going to outlive me. What a grand purpose to live for. Reflect more. Risk more. And do more things that would outlive us. A little boy woke up one night calling out for his dad. His dad came to him and reassured him that everything was okay. Those of you who are dads or mums would know all about this. He prayed with his son and ensured him that Jesus was with him. A little while later, dad was called back to the little boy and he was still frightened. I've told you that Jesus is with you. Everything will be okay. But dad, said the little boy, I Need Jesus with skin on. People in the mess of our society need Jesus with skin on. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son into this world on a rescue mission. And thank you, Father, that most of us here this morning have been rescued by you. Thank you for the riches of your grace and your love and your forgiveness that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you give them super abundantly. You've delighted to focus your love on us and call us your beloved. Father, help us to reflect on that more and more and then empower us by your Spirit to risk more and to do stuff that would outlive us as we go out into this world from here this morning, in our families, in our workplaces, in our school places, in our university, where we rest and relax, where we play our sport. Father, help us to be salt and light, the sent ones empowered by your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.